audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. Today's scripture reading is from the Apostle Paul's letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, The two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, my friends. It's a delight to be with you in worship on this very beautiful winter day. The sun is shining through the windows, which is always a delight for me here at Peachtree. I can tell you all I have to do is look at pictures that my family sends from home in Illinois and in Michigan to tell you that you're lucky today that it's just a little cold. They are all frozen inside, so much ice and snow. So it is a beautiful day to be together in worship. Uh, this weekend is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. It's now become in our country, I'm convinced, a three-day weekend to take holidays and trips. And I'm not telling people they can't do that, but what I do want you to remember is the legacy of Dr. King and what it has meant to our, not just country, but our world. And Ten years ago, tomorrow, I went on pilgrimage after I just had moved to Atlanta from Illinois, and I, I went downtown to Ebenezer Baptist Church. Not not the new magnificent facility, but the old church. And I walked in to see where Dr. King preached, which is a very scary thing for a preacher to ever think about Martin Luther King and that he shared the same vocation as you because he spoke so transcendently. And I looked at that sanctuary and I thought, how ordinary. And I looked at that pulpit and I thought, how normal. But isn't it incredible what God can do with one of God's chosen ones, one of God's faithful, when they work for God's justice? So I encourage you that no matter where you are tomorrow, that at some point you sit and think about how you can participate in the narrative of God's redemption and justice, even in small ways, even if you come from a place without authority and power, even if it's an ordinary pulpit that you have. The voice of God speaking through you will transcend the narratives. And you can participate too, like faithful ones like King and others, and speaking out against negative 
biases and injustices, and you can speak truth to power. And that was a good way to honor Dr. King in my estimation. Now, I'd like to give you the gift I try to give you each week, and that's of time and breath, how often we don't slow down. So would you join with me in a few deep cleansing breaths as a gift to yourself and as we prepare our hearts to hear from the Holy Spirit today? Breathe deeply. Breathe out. Take a cleansing breath in. Empty all the air from your lungs down. Breathe in the breath of God. God, we come here today because it is our heart to be the beloved community that you've called us to be. We stand on the legacy and shoulders of so many who come before us preaching the the vision of the kingdom and the good community that exists and can exist and must continue to exist and become full in the future in this world. We're thankful for those legacies and examples of holiness and faithfulness. God, you and I know that without you, I can do nothing. So I ask that your spirit fall upon this place and everywhere that my voice may be heard, that these words may be in some way helpful and instructive for us as a beloved community, that we may go forth in true freedom and true joy to live as your people. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Christ our Savior, and God's people say together, Amen. The slogans that you rehearse matter. The slogans that you were taught and the slogans that you have caught matter. Slogans, those things that we say often to shape our imagination, to give us motivation, they seep into our minds in ways that sometimes we can see and sometimes ways we can't see. Sometimes their effect goes and touches other ideas that we have, and it's not clear to us what has influenced what. But slogans that we rehearse, they matter. There was once a professor minister friend that I knew. He talked about this very idea about how slogans practiced over and over can help form your conscience. He was a minister at one time in Houston, Texas, and he had a doctoral degree, and he had a congregation that was thriving and fairly large, and people loved to hear him preach. He was a skilled preacher. He also had some sway with the governor and the mayor of the city because his pulpit afforded him that influence. And so if you were looking at the outside and looking in, you would think he's rather successful. Does it shock any of you to know that ministers who have everything also feel like they lack success? Yeah, even ministers. And he felt like he wasn't successful because he violated daily the slogan that his dad taught him since he was just a little boy and he continued to preach to him until he grew up, and that is this, do what you fear. Have you ever heard that slogan, do what you fear? It sounds empowering upon first blush because we know that fears stand in the way of our flourishing. They often stand in the way of our success. They sometimes make us do things that are not healthy and sometimes downright bad things follow our fears. So if you do what you fear, then somehow you're facing down the thing that stands in your way and it seems to be motivational, if you ask me. 
But you see, that phrase was uttered so much in his life and practiced so much in his head that it began to take root in ways he didn't even know deep down, and it helped form his conscience. So, he was not a success because he was really afraid of the area of town that people often call Skid Row, where the unhomed friends of our community live, where people often walk the streets with significant mental disabilities and mental and cognitive uh, decline. And he was terrified. His church didn't do anything to help the area of town. They, they didn't have members that came from that area of town. He didn't even know what to do. But one night while he was trying to go to sleep, and he couldn't go to sleep because he just kept having this gnawing feeling that he wasn't doing all that he could to be successful in the eyes of God because he wasn't doing what scared him. So instead of going in the daylight with somebody who knows the area, who could show him around and teach him how to be safe in that area of town and also teach him what the people of the community needed and how to help so that our helping wouldn't hurt, Instead of that measured approach, he decided when he couldn't sleep one night, I don't know, it could have been midnight or three in the morning, I forget now, but he decided to get up out of his bed and get in his car and drive to Skid Row in Houston, Texas, and he thought he'd go out and preach to the people on the streets. He asked the group of people who were listening to him if we thought that that was wise. Is that the only way that he could have done God's will for that community? His lesson is profound to me that while that community really does require ministry from the church, and while he did need to overcome a fear, the, the do what you fear slogan had really shaped him in ways that he hadn't imagined and put him in a place of danger. He wasn't calculated enough to do anything worthwhile. The slogans we rehearse matter. And it turns out that the people in the city of Corinth and the people that worship in the Christian church there in Corinth, they had a popular slogan too, a slogan that was rehearsed all about them, it turns out, and that slogan is something like this, everything is lawful. And depending on the translation you grew up reading, you might have heard it said this way, everything is permissible. It was a libertine society. In, in essence, the people would say, hey, I, I got freedom to do what I want to do. I'm free to do most things. And that idea invaded the church. St. Paul had come through and preached to these people that he's writing a letter to now, and while he was there, he too picked up on the concept of freedom. He talked to them about being free. Yes, he did. He talked to them about being free from all the bad stuff, the sin, the, the old life. He talked to them about being free from it all, but he talked about something else, freedom in Christ. Not just freedom from restraint, but freedom for something. That's what Paul told him about. And now the slogan of the community, it was kind of overlapping with the theological belief of the church, and it began to muddy the virtues and practices of the people in the congregation. Sometimes, if we're not careful, the things of the world will influence the way we think about the scriptures and our tradition so much that we actually can hardly discern what is faithful to our faith and what is just a holdover from society. Shouldn't shock us. It happens all the time, and all the time in modern history too. In fact, about 200 years ago, when we were debating slavery, 
a lot of people were using the Holy Bible to justify slavery because if you really read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, it is not very plainly an anti-slavery text. Slavery seems to be commonplace in the systems of the cultures in the centuries that are represented in the Holy Scriptures. And you even have places where people are instructed on how to be a slave and how to be a slave owner. The fact that we become an anti-slavery religion is not due to just simple reading of Scripture. It's due to theology, how these ideas in Scripture play out in the world and how they push in on our moral ideas and presuppositions. Oh yes, people could justify slavery from Scripture, and they did. I know, that, that's a little harsh, and, and that's a couple hundred years ago. So let's talk about one that happens, I don't know, all the time today. Here's an idea from culture that I hear repeated as if it were a Christian phrase. You ready? Everything happens for a reason. What's it meant to say? Somebody's having a hard time in life, so you tell them something comforting like, don't worry, everything happens for a reason. The point is, don't worry because all the pain now is purposeful for you and it will help you in some way flourish or learn a lesson. But I'm here to tell you, as I've stated before, that is not biblical at all. It sounds somewhat biblical, especially when you read Romans, when, when Paul says to the church there that all things, even bad things, work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. A misunderstanding of that or a shallow reading of that can lead to the kind of, I don't know, Pollyannish, everything happens for a reason. But that is a very dangerous thing to say. I get it. Sometimes in the face of tragedy, you don't know what to say. You don't have the words. And so that's a good old standby. But think about the cost of it. I had a friend, I have a friend, whose mother died when he was 17. He's 48 and the cracks and wounds in his heart have never healed and they'll never heal and for years, he struggled going to church because people would say to him, don't worry, my son, don't worry, friend, don't worry, partner. Everything happens for a reason. And it made him bitter and angry because he thought to himself, I don't think I serve a God who killed my mother to teach me a lesson. It's just a tragedy because the world is broken. So it hurt him in the church for a long time because people would tell him that. What Paul says is that Things happen in this world. Can we agree that bad stuff happens? It happens to you, it happens to me, it happens in the world. And for those who God loves and God love, is, is loved by God, God will take that bad stuff and make something of it. That's all. There's hope there. So the people in the church of Corinth have this notion that, that they're free to do anything. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And they've even heard their preacher Paul say, yeah, freedom in Christ. But Paul reminds them that just because you're free to do things doesn't mean it's a good idea to do them. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's going to serve your desired end. You see, the people of God here in this church seems like we're visiting the temple prostitutes. That's a strange notion for our 21st century audience, but in the ancient world, at different places, in different customs, there might have been temple prostitutes to help facilitate and fertility worship, and worship that would help bring fertility to the land and to people and so on. And so it was a practice in certain cultures and certain uh, traditions, right? So it's legal to do so, says Paul, but it doesn't mean it's a good thing for you, because guess what? Your body, what you tie yourself to, you're tied to. So in the sexual intercourse you have with somebody, you're tying yourself to them, you're connecting yourself deeply with them. By the way, Paul is suggesting that 
there is more than just this spirit that's in people that's good. The spirit's right with God, but my body doesn't matter. He's not for that. I know a lot of Christians who are for that. That's another insidious world idea that's gone into the church. Paul says all of you is a spiritual being. And so if you tie yourself to something of this world, you're tied to it. But if you are tied to Jesus because you've been bought by Jesus with a price, God loves you enough to bring you back to himself through Jesus. Now, if you're that, then you become the hands and feet of Jesus. You are like the arms and legs of Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, how could you tie yourself to the destiny of another if you're truly tied to the destiny of God and Jesus Christ? Paul says, don't do that. Paul says, don't let your appetites rule you because they can destroy you. You may be free, but freedom at what cost? Freedom sometimes isn't free. So the church is struggling with this cultural convention of freedom and Christian practice of virtue. How should we behave? Which brings to my mind a question, and I hope it brings this question to your mind. What is freedom? How do we understand it and define it and put our arms around it? What is freedom? We ought to understand it. We're Americans. Freedom's important to us. But what is it? Now, if slogans matter, then let me assure you of this. The stories we tell matter much more. I remember being in grade school. We had a unit on folk heroes and local folk tales. We talked about Paul Bunyan, Pecos Bill. You can think of others. I heard at nine o'clock, Johnny Appleseed. I love Johnny Appleseed. He was a real fellow, by the way. This next one I'm going to say is a real fellow too, they think. Scholars debate where he was from, but his name was John Henry. In the tale of John Henry, he was a freed slave and he drove steel. Now, steel drivers took big old hammers and big old things of steel and drove them into rock so that they could eventually explode the rock or break the block away. the rock away so that railroad track can be laid. If you drive up to Chattanooga right now and you drive on the highway and you see those rock sides that you drive through, that, that's a steel driver job that did that, although they probably just used DDT. John Henry was an old-fashioned steel driver, and he was good, and he was strong. He was a freed slave, so by God, he was going to work and keep his job, keep his dignity, keep his value. And that's an American ideal. You're free to work hard. You're free to use everything you got. You're free to be as gritty as the next person so that you can get ahead. You're free to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Now the challenge of the tale comes because of technology. The technology is such that there is now a steel driving machine that can go faster than any man. So every steel driving team is going to be canceled out and they're going to be null and void because technology is going to surpass their job and take their job. We live in a world today where people are afraid of technology taking their jobs. You can imagine the existential angst of John Henry and the like. And so there's a competition. You've heard the song, the old folk song, blue song about it. He starts to hammer away in a competition against this machine and he is tough and he is strong and he's determined and he's going to succeed because he's putting his heart his blood, his sweat, his tears, he's gassing, he's pumping, and he is absolutely driving steel better than a machine. And at the end, he wins over the machine. He drives more steel and faster than an electronic or mechanical machine. 
And then he falls over dead. In a way, this story, the way we engage it, the way we teach it, the way we hear it, at least the way it was for me, it's taught under the idea of the American dream for freedom. You know, you can work and you can overcome. You can even overcome technology if you just try hard, work hard, keep your hand to the plow, you will succeed. But still, our hero ends up dead. Maybe the story is actually meant to undermine the dominant narratives of freedom in our culture. You know, freedom is supposed to be good, right, for us. Freedom at all costs is supposed to be the way we go. Uh, freedom is the answer. If we have a question to our politics, it's freedom. Freedom, freedom, and more freedom, and freedom will set you free, will it? What is freedom? Well, I know that we have a free market, and so many of us have a definition of that that, that that comes from the idea. Freedom is the idea of a lack of constraint or restraint or intervention from the outside. Free, freedom is about the ability to willfully choose and do, right? So if you are stopped, restrained, or intervened on, that, that's the lacking of freedom. It, that's really what we have for our popular imagination about freedom within the market, within the business world within the sense of how we can achieve our dreams. It's just, let me go and let me do. Don't tell me what to do. Now, don't think about marketing or the manipulation of governments or even corporations. Don't think that those are just hiccups in our free system. If you're smart enough, you can, you can outflank all those manipulations because ultimately at the end of the day, you still have this overriding um, impulse in your political, governmental, national DNA, and that is to be free from something, the tyranny of something. And this is deeply a part of Americans, America's genius. I want you to hear me correctly. This is a part of the genius of America. Before we had a Revolutionary War and a French Revolution and a couple of world wars, there was something called the ancien regime. I can never speak French well, but it's a French term. It just means the ancient ways, the ancient regime. And that had to do with your place in this world. When you were born in the ancient world and in Europe, you were born into a class, perhaps a, with a trade, and, and you were never going to rise above it. If you were the landed gentry, you were the landed gentry. But if you were a serf, you were a serf. And if you were a lord or lady, well, you had those dignities and those rights because of your birth. No other <laughs> reason for it because of your ancestral birth. And with the Revolutionary War and the French Revolution, and by the end of the Second World War, most of those regimes toppled over to a more democratic world. And then it was in America where we told people, you don't have to be born to a class, that you could rise up. That's the genius of America. That is the thing that excites people who aren't from America, especially a couple hundred years ago. But it's still not that way in the UK, not at least in the cultural mythos. I have a friend who worked in an office with a friend from Scotland, and they were talking about that question that you sometimes do, like, if you had to do it over again, what would you be? If you could go back to college, study something different, what would you choose? I forget what my friend said, but, but her, her coworker, who's from Scotland, said, I think I would have loved to have been a dentist. And my American friend said, well, that's great. Just go be a dentist then. I mean, you can do that. You can go back to school, go be a dentist. And the person said, no, 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 that's, that's not for me. I'm, that's not for me. And my friend said, 
no, no, you, 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 you can do it. You, you absolutely, you just dream it, go do it. And he said, no, no, that's not for me. You're such an American. I think when you watch the movie Braveheart, William Wallace's calls for freedom, the way he does it and what it's about is more American than it is Scottish. My friends, this dream to have freedom at the expense of restraint, this is not just us today, but it's alive here in the church at Corinth and the people of Corinth. But Paul reminds them, just because you're free to do something doesn't make it a good idea. It doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial to you. And there again, he talks about this, going and being with prostitutes in the temple and sullying so much of your body. He talks about the stomach and almost an addictive sort of drive to, to, to just feel the passions in us. Just because we have the drives and desire doesn't mean those drives and desire lead to our flourishing. Sometimes they lead to our downfall and our peril. But see, for Paul, and no less a thinker than St. Augustine, freedom for Christianity is different than the slogans of Corinth, and it's different even than our popular mythos here in America. It's not just about restraints being thrown off or freedom from things. It's about freedom for something. In fact, St. Augustine would say that to truly be free, you have to be drawn into the goodness of God. Your life has to be directed towards what is good, beautiful, and true, or to God's will. It's weird. It's paradoxical. But to be free, to be authentically free and yourself, you have to be submissive to the will of God because only God knows what it means to be who you are more than you know what it means to be who you are and meant to be. So it means to actually discipline oneself to the patterns of God, and only there will flourishing follow. We sometimes read Jocko Willink's books to the kids, and Jocko is that Navy SEAL guy who now gets paid millions of dollars to tell people about leadership and things of that nature. He wrote these kids' books, and one of the things that he's teaching in this kids' book is this simple phrase. It's another slogan. It's another aphorism. It says this, discipline equals freedom. And the kids look at it and go, that sounds silly. But it's true. If you're disciplined enough to get up every day and do a routine of stretching, then you will be free later on in life with more flexibility and control of your body. If you have the discipline to get up every day, watch your diet and lift weights every day, then when you're older, you will have the freedom of bodily movement better than if you hadn't done those things. Discipline does equal freedom, right? We can say that in a very pragmatic way. But this is theological, by disciplining our heart and our desires and our will toward the will and end of God, by finding ourselves in and under the aegis of God's command in our lives, it's only there that we'll find out what it truly means to be free. Which is why, which is why, and hear me, friends, freedom was not complete in 1776. And freedom was not full after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, nor even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You see, freedom for enslaved ancestors, ancestors of the enslaved peoples in America, is not simply achieved by removing slavery. It's not done. It can't be done. It can't be done until a good, moral thinking societies and people work to make things matter for people so that they can have a life that is pointed toward the good. It cannot work until absolutely people are put in a similar starting place. You can't tell people, 
we're as free and as equal as possible. If you have to start a mile behind me, that is not a fair race. You see, freedom is a personal thing. I'm looking for my personal freedom. I'm looking for my, for my life in Jesus Christ. But it's also corporate. We are called to be the beloved community. We are all called to be the society called the kingdom of God. And only in that can we, and when we think about how it affects life affects other people, can we genuinely look for freedom in this world? But work for each other's freedom, not simply our own freedom. It concerns prejudice, yes, but it concerns systems as well, and things inherent in our society. You see, this passage may be about freedom in the Corinthian church versus certain virtues or non-virtues that play out in temple prostitution and sexual immorality. But if it just ends there, it really doesn't have a lot to say to us, does it? Because that's not really something we're dealing with. Let me suggest, <laughs> this seems like a little idea, but it's bold and its vision is huge because it undermines how we understand what is free and what the world is for. Its deep logic runs. You see, as we celebrate Dr. King, he had a dream for the beloved community, for a society of freedom where we all have a share, where we all have a place, right? We, same place. But that dream is a vicious nightmare. It's a vicious nightmare of the pale version of freedom that we're offering. We're not all starting at the same place. And so the people of good faith in this world need to help out others who are not starting off on the same footing. It takes us to bring change to structures and starting points, make sure each has an opportunity to live their life toward God. And when I think about this beyond race, just to show what I'm talking about, we are living in a world that's market is free. But let me ask you, is there freedom in it? Yes, I don't have to buy this product. I can go buy that product instead. And I don't have to go to this service place for my needs to be met because I don't like how they treat me. So I'll go over here and, and costs will be determined because of that. And, and, and I'm all pursuing my life, my good life, my flourishing before God. And, and part of that flourishing somehow I've convinced myself is consuming more stuff, getting more things at a discount, at a cheap cost. That doesn't go, that's not going to harm me too much, right? This is part of the narrative that we don't tell, but we all live it's there. It's deep down inside. Yet, for me to buy the shoes I bought, who produces them? Do I even know who made my phone? Or what conditions they made it in? Are they essentially slaves? Do you know the price of sugar is so low because we subsidize it? But we subsidize people who put other people in slavery in the Dominican Republic and Haiti? That, that's us. My question to you is this. Is that freedom? Just so I can have a cheaper cause. Well, I don't want to upset you too much to tell you that injustice runs from the top down to this world. I want to tell you about the heart of God. The heart of God says you may have freedoms, you may have choice, you may have desires, you may have dreams, but ask yourself the question, are they good? Are they directed towards the purposes of God in this world? Because I believe that no matter how much you try to find yourself or be yourself or define your identity, you will only find your true authentic self when you're brought closer to the will and heartbeat of God. Paul's big deal in this passage has huge implications for us all. 
What is it that you think about and fixate your mind on? What is it you spend money on? What is it that makes you angry? What is it that makes you in love? These are the things that are questioning, or these are the concepts that, that revolve around our freedoms and our dreams. Ask yourself this day and each day, are they good? Are they truly free? Are they tying me up in addictions? Are they making me ignore the plight of other people? These are big questions. You're not going to like the answers all the time, but you can work one day at a time, one step at a time. You can continue walking towards God one step at a time. Freedom isn't free. It costs. And next time you think about your freedom, I want you to ask yourself the one question. Just because I can. Doesn't mean I should. 